Good afternoon, everybody. We are continuing in our study of church history. Um, if you will, uh, we'll, we'll start off with a reading from Scripture, and hopefully uh, technology will not fail me today. Uh, we're starting off in John chapter 15. So if you will navigate there in your Bibles to John chapter 15. And as you walked in, um, you should have grabbed two handouts this afternoon. Uh, hopefully you were able to do so. Uh, one was the uh, standard outline that we hand out every, every uh, church history study. But then there was a second document, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. Hopefully you grabbed both of those. Uh, those will be necessary, um, well, at least helpful, for our, our study this afternoon. Does anyone need either one of those? We, we need one in here, yeah. Perfect. John chapter 15, we begin reading at verse 18. John 15 and verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ says, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things... They will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have seen, you have been with me from the beginning. Continuing on in chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our opening prayer this afternoon, usually I'd try and find a prayer from the ancient church from the, the time period that we're covering, but uh, instead what I've done is I've taken uh, a prayer that is offered on, uh, in honor of the martyrs from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, usually this prayer is, is offered in, uh, in the name of a particular martyr, but I have altered it uh, to be said on behalf of all of the martyrs. So if you would please join me. 
as we pray to God. Almighty God, You gave Your servants, those who comprise the white-robed army of martyrs in heaven, boldness to confess the name of our Savior Jesus Christ before the rulers of this world and courage to die for this faith. Grant that we may always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us and to suffer gladly for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we continue this afternoon our survey of church history, looking at those three major influences that shaped the early church. Now, we've already considered the background of the Jewish religion, and last time we considered the influence of Greek culture on the early church as we surveyed the life and teaching of origin of Alexandria. We come this afternoon to that third and final influence, the Roman Empire. Now, Rome was a massive empire. And though we have some record of Christianity expanding beyond her borders, nonetheless, the story of Christianity by and large develops within the Roman Empire. And this early history is marked by a fierce antagonism. Christianity was, until the time of Constantine, around the year 313, an illegal religion. And Christians lived under the constant threat of persecution. But why did the Romans persecute the Christians? It's interesting to note that when we read the New Testament, oftentimes the Roman officials are painted as the good guys of the story. When the Jews would put Paul to death, he appeals to the Roman authorities and he's saved. This providential arrangement didn't last forever. In fact, Paul himself would lose his life along with the Apostle Peter in the first imperial persecution against the Christians by the Emperor Nero in the middle of the sixth decade of the first century. Nero was in a bit of a bind. A a devastating fire had ravaged the city of Rome. In the year 64, from July 18th to July 23rd, for six days, the fire tore through the city, and by the time it was finally brought under control, two-thirds of the city had been destroyed. Well, rumors started to spread that Nero himself was responsible for starting the fire in order to clear space for his ambitious building projects. So to deflect blame, Nero said that the Christians were the real culprits. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing decades later, records the details, and I I have this quote for you uh, in um, in your handout, in the outline. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Tacitus says, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, 
This destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs, by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer mixing with the plebs or driving about the race course, even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. Thus was Nero's cruelty. Tacitus does say some things interesting here regarding Christian persecution, and I think it is worthy of our consideration. In your handout, by the way, uh, there was a little mix-up. Um, this, this first page following Tacitus's quote follows the last page. So you should be turning to the back of your handout. My apologies for that. First notice that Tacitus says uh, towards the end of his statement... Even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent examples of the consequences of crime. Christians, Tacitus says, are clearly guilty. Guilty of what? Well, that's a good question. In fact, uh, we have a letter written by a provincial governor, a man named Pliny the Younger, to the Roman Emperor Trajan sometime around the year 112, Pliny's territory had become overrun with Christians. And the governor was eager to act uh, to punish this seditious sect. But what exactly was the nature of their crime? Pliny writes to the emperor saying, I have never before participated in trials of Christians, so I do not know what offenses are to be punished or investigated, or to what extent. Is pardon to be granted for repentance? Or if a man has once been a Christian, is it irrelevant whether he has ceased to be one? Is the name itself to be punished, even without offenses? Or only the offenses perpetrated in connection with the name? It's a good question. Well, the emperor responded, Admitting, quote, it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. When the government gives that kind of answer, that's, that's usually a sign of bad things. Um, it seems that the only thing that the Christians were guilty of was being Christians. Association with the name was enough to warrant execution. The Apostle, uh, what an example this is for us. 
The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Persecution in various forms will come. That is the nature of this present evil age. Our Lord suffered and was crucified, and we, His disciples, should expect nothing less. But we ought to live in such a way that our adversaries will be put to shame when they act against us. When accusations were being brought against our Lord, you'll remember they had to make things up He said he'd destroy the temple. He said we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, notice what Tacitus says. He says that Christians were, quote, infamous for their abominations. Well, what abominations is he talking about? There were many accusations leveled against the Christians. The Romans had a cruel practice of discarding their unwanted babies leaving them out in the elements or at the town dump to suffer and die. Christians would lie in wait and would rescue these babies, adopt them and raise them up in their own families. Uh, Keep that in mind. Uh, Also, the early Christian church was not what we would call seeker-sensitive. Because of the risk of persecution, uh, Christians often met in secret. And even if an unbeliever gained access to the church service, when the time came to celebrate the Lord's Supper, all of the unbaptized would be dismissed. They weren't allowed to see or to participate in the taking of the Lord's Supper. All anyone knew is that the Christians were eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood. So the rumor spread that the Christians in their worship services were taking these infants that they had rescued, these babies, killing them and eating them. And this happened during what Christians called the agape, or the love feast, where men and women calling each other brother and sister greeted each other with a holy kiss. So many pagans got it into their heads that Christians were baby-murdering, incestuous, cannibals. In fact, a main feature of Christian apologetics for these first 300 years uh, is writing in order to diffuse some of these bizarre accusations. While the popular imagination might have run wild, Roman officials generally knew better. Pliny, in his letter to Trajan, admits... The sum and substance of the Christians' fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ 
as to a god, but not uh, and to bind themselves, excuse me, by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, nor not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food, not babies. So why did the Romans persecute Christians? The sad reality is that the Christians were the go-to scapegoat whenever a bitter providence struck the empire. Tertullian, Tertullian writes, and I have this on the second page, the top of the second page in your handout. Tertullian writes, if the Tiber rises to the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky is rainless, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a plague, immediately the cry arises, the Christians to the lion. Whenever times were hard for the empire, the Christians suffered more. And the Romans reasoned this was just. They, were tr- uh, they truly believed that the key to their success was their syncretism, their mixture of different religious beliefs, their acceptance of many gods. They were favored by the gods because they worshipped and honored all of the gods. And sacrificing to the emperor was a sign of civic loyalty. For most people, it was no different than saluting a, fa- a, a flag, excuse me, or saying the Pledge of Allegiance. But for Christians, it was gross idolatry. The gods are punishing us, the pagans reasoned, because the Christians refused to sacrifice to them. This is what Tacitus means when he says of Christians that they were punished for their hatred of the human race. Times have not changed. Uh, That is an accusation that is still leveled against Christians to this very day. Uh, Whether it's our our sexual ethic or our understanding of uh, the preciousness of life and its sanctity, um, why, why do we do these things? Why do we support uh, outlawing, outlawing abortion? Why do we champion that marriage is to be between one man and one woman? Uh, because we hate mankind, obviously. Things have not changed. Well, I want to change gears here. And for the, the rest of our time, I want to consider that second handout that you received, The Martyrdom of Saints Perpetua and Felicity. I do need to say some things, though, about uh, Perpetua. Um, if I remember correctly, it's estimated that about 2% of women in the Roman Empire were able to read and write. Given that figure, it is amazing that anything like this has survived down from antiquity. This is indeed a treasure. How many of us have have heard of Perpetua and Felicity? Some of us have? Yes. Has anyone read the martyrdom? Yes. Okay. Good. Um, For most of you, this will be new. Um, 
what I have presented here for you isn't the entire document. Um, it's not very long. You could probably read the whole thing in about 45 minutes to an hour. It's not terribly long. Um, but you should know this about Perpetua. Perpetua belonged to the sect known as the Montanists. And Pastor Kyle, in his survey of church history, covered briefly the Montanists. The Montanists were uh, the early church version of uh, the Charismatics, speaking in tongues, prophesying, signs and wonders, and what have you. And as with modern-day Charismatics, there was a spectrum. There were those who were faithful, orthodox, believed the faith that had been handed down from the apostles, guys like Tertullian. It might surprise you to know that Tertullian, who we quote almost every study in church history, uh, Tertullian uh, died as a Montanist, but he still held in high regard as the father of Latin theology. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had uh, wild-eyed heretics. The same is true of modern-day charismatics. Where was Perpetua on the spectrum? Well, living 1,800 years after the fact, it's probably impossible for us to say where Perpetua was on that spectrum. Um, it, it is interesting to note that St. Augustine, of all people, he lived about 200 years after Perpetua. He held her in high esteem, and every anniversary of her martyrdom, uh, he would preach a sermon in her honor. And we have a handful of those sermons, uh, the, the transcript of them. So uh, he held Perpetua in high honor. Uh, there was an old saying that the medievals uh, used to use um, that was uh, something like, if Augustine believes it, it is sufficient. So uh, I, I think that says a lot um, about Perpetua. Nonetheless, this is a great treasure that we have uh, for us. Uh, it is a prison diary. Uh, Perpetua wrote this uh, as she was uh, in prison waiting to be executed. Uh, an editor has come in and put the introduction and the conclusion. Of course, she didn't write about her own martyrdom uh, because she was martyred. She couldn't do that. So obviously an editor has, has added some things. Uh, Perpetua lived in North Africa in the city of Carthage. This is the same persecution that swept up Leonidas, uh, the father of origin that we learned of uh, last time. Um, so with that said, uh, let's just dive in. And if you would follow along as I read. I've got some notes here, um, but not too many. So I'll, I'll break in every once in a while. But We begin, of course, with chapter 2. A number of young catechumens were arrested. Revocatus and his fellow slave Felicity, Saturninus and Secundulus, and with them Vivia Perpetua, a newly married woman of good family and upbringing. Now this word here, catechumen, might not be familiar to you. Uh, it's the same root that we get our word catechism from. Uh, to be a catechumen in the early church was a period of instruction, uh, preparing to be baptized. Uh, this period could last anywhere from 40 days to three years, depending on the, lo the local church and the circumstance surrounding the individual. And it's fascinating here that we have um, both uh, men and women, slave and highborn, brought together in Christ, suffering together in this persecution. Uh, the editor continues about Perpetua. 
Her mother and father were still alive, and one of her two brothers was a catechumen like herself. She was about 22 years old and had an infant son at the breast. Now, from this point on, the entire account of her ordeal is her own, according to her own ideas and in the way that she herself wrote it down. Chapter 3. While we were still under arrest, she said, My father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was angered by the word Christian, that he moved towards me as though he would pluck my eyes out. But he left it at that and departed, vanquished, along with his diabolical arguments. For a few days afterwards, I gave thanks to the Lord that I was separated from my father, and I was comforted by his absence. During these few days, I was baptized And I was inspired by the Spirit not to ask for any favor after the water, but simply the perseverance of the flesh. So there you you get a little bit of the hint of the mountainous flavor. Um, I I forgot to mention this. Uh, A lot of the portions that I cut out of the martyrdom are visions and dreams that she has, prophetic dreams of what's to happen. I I cut all those out, so none of that is in here. Um, She talks about the privilege of being baptized while in prison. Uh, Tertullian has given us a little bit of what baptism might have looked like in North Africa at this time. Uh, Usually it would have been officiated by a bishop or a qualified layman. There would be three witnesses. Uh, You weren't baptized in front of the whole church like like we do um, on the Lord's Day, because in those days when you were baptized, uh, you were baptized in the nude. So You didn't want to do that in front of everybody. Um, We can get into why that is later. Uh, They were baptized, uh, they were immersed three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There would be fasting and uh, night vigils that would come beforehand. Uh, The baptism would include a formal confession, a recitation of the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, etc., a renunciation of Satan, a laying on of hands, followed by a meal of milk and honey. That might seem odd. Why do you think that's significant? Milk, a meal of milk and honey. This gives me a chance to take a drink. Does anyone, anyone recognize where that's from? Milk and honey? Why would that be significant? You answered too quick. <laughs> um, that's right. There is, there is this identification with uh, being baptized and being the true Israel, entering into the promised land. Sorry, dispensationalist. It's just, it's, uh, but it's there in the ancient church history. Um, I continue on with the narrative. Uh, a few days later, we were lodged in the prison, and I was terrified, as I had never before been in such a dark hole, What a difficult time it was. With the crowd, the heat was stifling. Then there was the extortion of the soldiers. 
And to crown all, I was tortured with worry for my baby there. Then Tertius and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby, who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother, and I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once, I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over my child. The prison had suddenly become a palace, so they wanted to be so that I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. Chapter 5. A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with with worry, said, Have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child, who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. This was the way my father spoke out of love for me, kissing my hands and throwing himself down before me, With tears in his eyes, he no longer addressed me as his daughter, but as a woman. I was sorry for my father's sake, because he alone, of all my kin, would be unhappy to see me suffer. I tried to comfort him, saying, It will all happen in the prisoner's dock, as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. And he left me in great sorrow. As the father of two daughters, that's tough to read. Chapter 6. One day, while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum, and straight away the story went about the neighborhood near the forum, and a huge crowd gathered. We walked up to the prisoner's dock, All the others, when questioned, admitted their guilt, that is, they confessed that they were indeed Christians. Then when it came my turn, my father appeared with my son, dragged me from the step and said, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. Hilarionus, the governor, who had received his judicial powers as the successor of the late proconsul Minutius Timonius, said to me, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperors. Now, uh, we've we've already touched on this idea here of offering the sacrifice. Uh, To do so, uh, or to refuse to do so, was for the Romans an act of sedition. Uh, A citizen pledged their loyalty to their government by offering sacrifice on behalf of the emperor and his health. Uh, to, do, to refuse to do so was to break that social contract. 
Sacrifice would have involved a bloodless ritual, uh, pouring some wine, burning some incense, uh, along with an oath of allegiance to the emperor. For Christians, uh, this was an act of idolatry. It was not permitted. They would uh, rather uh, uh, suffer for the sake of Christ and for their faith than to uh, compromise. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian, said Hilarionus? And I said, yes, I am. When my father persisted in trying to dissuade me, Hilarionus ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod. It's kind of crowd control. I felt sorry for father, just as if I myself had been beaten. I felt sorry for his pathetic old age. Then Hilarionus passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beast, and we returned to the prison in high spirits. But my baby had got used to being nursed at the breast and to staying with me in prison. So I sent the deacon Pomponius straight away to my father to ask for the baby, but father refused to give him over. But as God willed, the baby had no further desire for the breast, nor did I suffer any inflammation. And so I was relieved of my anxiety for my child and any discomfort in my breast. Chapter 9. Some days later, an adjutant named Puddens, an adjutant would have been an assisting officer, uh, who was in charge of the prison, began to show us great honor, realizing that we possessed some great power within us. Just, just in passing, I know there are a handful of families that are expecting. Um, and so if you're looking for a, a good boy's name, keep in mind that Puddens is on the table, apparently. And he began to allow many visitors to see us for our mutual comfort. Now the day of the contest was approaching, and my father came to see me overwhelmed with sorrow. He started tearing the hairs from his beard and throwing them on the ground. He then threw himself on the ground and began to curse his old age and to say such words as would move all creation. I felt sorry for for his unhappy old age. Well, Perpetua's diary ends with chapter 10. Uh, The editor supplies the remaining chapters. Uh, Just briefly in passing, chapter uh, 14 mentions that their fellow prisoner, Secundulus, dies while in prison. And so we pick up with chapter 15. As for Felicity, she too enjoyed the Lord's favor in this wise. She had been pregnant when she was arrested and was now in her eighth month. As the day of the spectacle drew near, she was very uh, distressed that her martyrdom would be postponed because of her pregnancy, for it is against the law for women with child to be executed. Thus she might have to shed her holy, innocent blood afterwards, along with others who were common criminals. Her comrades in martyrdom were also saddened, for they were afraid that they would have to leave behind so fine a companion to travel alone on the same road to hope. And so, two days before the contest, they poured forth a prayer to the Lord in one torrent of common grief, and immediately after their prayer, the birth pains came upon her. She suffered a good deal in her labor because of the natural difficulty of an eight-month's delivery. Hence, one of the assistants 
of the prison guards said to her, You suffer so much now. What will you do when you are tossed to the beast? Little did you think of them when you refused to sacrifice. What I am suffering now, she replied, I suffer by myself. But then another will be inside me who will suffer for me, just as I shall be suffering for him. And she gave birth to a girl, and one of the sisters brought her up as her own daughter. Chapter 16, I just include there the final, uh, the final sentence of that, of that chapter, which reads, By this time, the adjutant who was head of the jail was himself a Christian. So now we have Saint Puddins. Chapter 17. On the day before, when they had their last meal, which is called the free banquet, this was, you know, what you might be uh, uh, accustomed to, uh, uh, similar to a, a final meal of a prisoner on death row. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, they celebrated not a banquet, but rather a love feast. This is the agape. It's implying that they took the Lord's Supper together. They spoke to the mob with the same steadfastness, warned them of God's judgment, stressing the joy they would have in their suffering and ridiculing the curiosity of those who came to see them. What do a bunch of uh, uh, cannibalistic, uh, incestuous baby killers look like? Do they have two heads or what do they look like? Um, Saturus said, uh, uh, by the way, Saturus this is the first time in this um, excerpt that Saturus is mentioned. Uh, he's first mentioned by Perpetua in chapter 4 of the document, which I didn't include. Um, this is what she says of Saturus. Because he had been our teacher, and because he had been present when we were seized, he later voluntarily handed himself over for our sake. So he was their teacher. He wasn't there when the group was seized, so he voluntarily offered uh, to join them in prison and to join them in martyrdom. Such was his love for his people. Saturus said, Will not tomorrow be enough for you? Why are you so eager to see something that you dislike? Our friends today will be our enemies on the morrow, but take careful, uh, take careful note of what we look like so that you will recognize us on that day. Thus everyone would depart from the prison in amazement, and many of them began to believe. Chapter 18. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven, with calm faces trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God, as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. With them also was Felicity, glad that she had safely given birth so that now she could fight the beast, going from one bloodbath to another, from the midwife to the gladiator, ready to wash after childbirth in a second baptism. Referring to martyrdom, of course. They were then led up to the gates, and the men were forced to put on the robes of priests of Saturn. The women the dress of the priestess of Ceres. But the noble Perpetua strenuously resisted to this end. Uh, res I'm sorry, resisted this to the end. 
We came to this of our own free will, that our freedom should not be violated. We agreed to pledge our lives, provided that we would do no such thing. You agreed with us to do this. Even injustice recognized justice. The military tribune agreed. They were to be brought into the arena just as they were. Perpetua then began to sing a psalm. Revocatus, Saturninus, and Saturus began to warn on, uh, to warn the onlooking mob. Then when they came within sight of Hilarianus, they suggested by their motions and gestures, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you, was what they were saying. At this, the crowds became enraged and demanded that they be scourged before a line of gladiators. And they rejoiced at this, that they had obtained a share in the Lord's sufferings. Chapter 19. But he who said, Ask and you shall receive, answered their prayer by giving each one the death he had asked for. For whenever they would discuss among themselves their desire for martyrdom, Saturninus indeed insisted that he wanted to be exposed to all the different beasts, that his crown might be all the more glorious. And so at the outset of the contest, he and Revocatus were matched with a leopard, and then while in the stocks they were attacked by a bear. As for Saturus, he dreaded nothing more than a bear, and he counted on being killed by one bite of a leopard. Then he was matched with a wild boar, But the gladiator who had tied him to the animal was gored by the boar and died a few days after the contest, whereas Saturus was only dragged along. Then when he was bound in the stocks awaiting the bear, the animal refused to come out of the cages, so that Saturus was called back once more unhurt. Chapter 20. For the young women, however... The devil had prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual animal, but it was chosen that their sex might be matched with that of the beast. So they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and thus brought out of the arena. Even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth with the milk still dripping from her breast. And so they were brought back again and dressed in unbelted tunics. First the heifer tossed Perpetua, and she fell on her back. Then sitting up, she pulled down the tunic that was ripped along the side so that it covered her thighs, thinking more of her modesty than of her pain. Next she asked for a pin to fasten her untidy hair, for it was not right that a martyr should die with her hair in disorder, lest she might seem to be mourning in her hour of triumph. Then she got up, and seeing that Felicity had been crushed to the ground, she went over to her, gave her her hand, and lifted her up. Then the two stood side by side. But the cruelty of the mob was by now appeased, and so they were called back through the gate of life. That means because they had survived being attacked by the wild animals, they were granted a brief reprieve in suffering. This, of course, was not the end of, their, of the story. There, Perpetua was held up by a man named Rusticus, who was, at that t- who was at the time a catechumen and kept close to her. 
She awoke from a kind of sleep, so absorbed had she been in ecstasy in the spirit. And she began to look about her. Then to the amazement of all, she said, when are we going to be thrown to that heifer or whatever it is? When told that this had already happened, she refused to believe it until she noticed the marks of her rough experience on her person and her dress. Then she called for her brother and spoke to him together with the catechumens and said, You must all stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we have gone through. Chapter 21. At another gate, Saturus was earnestly addressing the soldier puddins. It is exactly, he said, as I foretold and predicted. So far, not one animal has touched me. So now you may believe me with all your heart. I am going in there and I shall be finished off with one bite of the leopard. And immediately, as the contest was coming to a close, a leopard was let loose. And after one bite, Saturus was so drenched with blood that as he came away, the mob roared in the witness to his second baptism, well washed, well washed. For well washed indeed was one who had been bathed in this manner. Then he said to the soldier puddins, goodbye. Remember me and remember the faith. These things should not disturb you, but rather strengthen you. And with this, he asked puddins for a ring from his finger And dipping it into his wound, he gave it back to him again as a pledge and as a record of his bloodshed. Shortly after, he was thrown unconscious with the rest in the usual spot to have his throat cut. But the mob asked that their bodies be brought out into the open, that their eyes might be the guilty witnesses of the sword that pierced their flesh. And so the martyrs got up and went to the spot of their own accord as the people wanted them to. And kissing them, uh, I'm sorry, and kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with the ritual kiss of peace. The others took the sword in silence and without moving, especially Saturus, who being the first to climb the stairway was the first to die. That reference to the stairway is an is a allusion to a, a prophecy, a dream that Perpetua had earlier in the uh, in the account that I did not include in this excerpt. For once again, he was waiting for Perpetua. Perpetua, however, had yet to taste more pain. She screamed as she was struck on the the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Ah, most valiant and blessed martyrs, truly are you called and chosen for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. And any man who exalts, honors, and worships his glory should read for the consolation of the church these new deeds of heroism, which are no less significant than the tales of old. For these new manifestations of virtue will bear witness to one and the same Spirit who still operates, and to the God and to God the Father Almighty to his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom is splendor and immeasurable power for all the ages. Amen. This period of persecution 
would eventually come to an end. When Constantine the Great assumed the throne of the Roman Empire, Constantine ruled from about the year 306 to 337, and he labored to grant the Christians freedom to worship. Uh, Christianity has not yet made the official religion of the empire. That would not be till the end of the 4th century. Uh, but with the peace of the church, as it was called, uh, the Edict of Milan, issued in 313, uh, Christianity was granted uh, the status of a legal religion, and they were free to worship uh, in keeping with their conscience. And I've included in there um, the Edict of Milan. Milan. You could read that for yourself later. Um, it's very modern in the way that it's written, in that it, uh, it prescribes the, the, the freedom of religion for all of Rome's subjects, that no one is to be harassed um, for worshiping God according to the dictates of their own conscience. Unfortunately, this would not last forever. Um, uh, just to sum up, as we draw our time to a close, um, you know, it's probably trite to <laughs> cut it off like this, but um, just as we're coming off uh, the privilege of celebrating the 4th of July, uh, we need to be thankful thankful that we live in a country where we do have the freedom to gather together and to worship God uh, in accordance with his word and what he has told us uh, in his word. Not everyone has had that privilege, as we've read of uh, the horrors that the Christians faced during those early centuries. Um, and we need to pray, because the privilege that we have, uh, not everyone does. Uh, Christians uh, to this day, around the world, are being persecuted for their faith. We need to be in earnest prayer for those brothers and sisters, that they would remain firm in the faith. Uh, and so with that, um, that's all I have for you. Uh, do we have any questions? Yes. I don't know if we're going to do... Uh, it's probably best for the audio. once. So I've, I've, got, ooh, I've got like six questions <laughs> wrote down, but I'll just stick to the first one and then let other people have some time. Yeah. So prior to the fire in 64, uh, what did the treatments of Christians by Nero look like? Uh, I'm sorry, what was, what was so that? Prior to that fire in AD 64, yeah. what did the treatment of Christians by Nero look like? So... Um, that was the beginning of the imperial persecution against the Christians. Um, prior to that time, Christianity is uh, assumed to be just another sect of Judaism, and the Jews were afforded a degree of religious freedom. Um, the, the Romans understood that the, the Jews were violently monotheistic, and that to try and enforce upon them uh, this form of emperor worship uh, would not, uh, was bad for business. It didn't bode well for the peace, because Jews were all over the empire, uh, not just in, in, in Israel. Uh, they made up a significant 
portion of the population in Alexandria and uh, other places around the empire. So uh, the Jews were granted a degree of religious liberty uh, to gather together. Um, the, the only thing that the Rome required is that they offered sacrifice um, on behalf of the emperor. Not to the emperor, but on behalf of the emperor, which they were willing to do. Um, so up until the time of 64, Christians were generally assumed to be just another Jewish sect. Um, in fact, if you read the New Testament, the book of Acts, that's usually how the Roman officials treat them. Right? This is just another disagreement among Jews arguing over their law. You guys settle it. It's none of our business. Um, so that, that's generally how Christians were treated. They weren't, they weren't targeted by, by local officials uh, as a separate sect just yet. Good question. Any other questions? Not really a question, more of just a comment on Pliny's letter. Um, the totality of that letter is an interesting exchange between him and Trajan as, as Pliny's kind of wondering, you know, his interrogation techniques. How should I, you know, this is what I do. Right. I call them in. I ask them if they're a Christian. You know, if they say, you know, I ask them three times. You know, if they say yes the third time, then they're taken away. But it's interesting that their charge wasn't that they were criminals, but that they would not participate in the criminal activities of, uh, that are listed in the letter. And, uh, you know, if we think, we think for a moment that, um, you know, that how we suffer is insignificant. You know, we need to go back and read Peter's letter and, and note that, that the measure of, of faith is seen in these martyrs as they're, they're holding fast to the faith that they professed. Um, and even, even when faced with persecution from the government uh, that is in power, it's just it's astounding uh, to read those historic letters, especially that, that interchange between Pliny and, and Trajan. Um, he brings in a deaconess and asks her, even a man who had, had recounted and said he hadn't been a Christian for a long time, he says, what do I do with that guy? You yeah. know, it's just, it's interesting. Thank you for taking the time to bring that to us. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Yeah. Do we attribute any significance to the portions in the letter where they were saying there was visions and I guess like a prophecy of the events that took place. Uh, what do you think about those? Um, you, you mean uh, like, flesh, flesh out the question a little bit for me. Alright, so um, you were saying in, in, one, in one part like uh, Saturnus, he was the first to go on the steps, and I guess right. that was according to vision or something right. like that. Is that just illustration, or is that you know, the, is is the vision significant because the story says the vision is significant? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you if you were here when when I introduced the the letter, uh, the, the the account of the martyrdom. Um, uh, these were Montanists, uh, so so they they were Montanists. So they, okay. they were yeah. ancient. Charismatics. Gotcha. Um, so speaking sure. in tongues, yeah. seeing visions. And like I explained, uh, uh, they existed on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, just like charismatics today, there were those who were, uh, who were faithful, who were orthodox, like Tertullian. Um, and then on the opposite side, I mean, 
Montanus himself believed that he was, you know, the, the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Right? Right. So that's way out there. For sure. <laughs> uh, rank heresy. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for, for the purpose, this is, for all intents and purposes, this is Montanus propaganda in, mm-hmm. one, in one sense. Right. That's why I didn't include the whole thing. <laughs> right, thank you. Um, because there is an emphasis on new prophecy. And the things that the Spirit is saying today is as divinely inspired as the things that he said in the other 66 books. Um, so, so there's that emphasis that you get in the full document. Which, by the way, if anyone would like to read the full document, um, I do have a PDF of that. Uh, you, can, you can go online and, and Google it and find it. In older translations, the language is, is a bit difficult. Um, I have a, a more modern English Edition. If uh, anyone would like a copy of that PDF, come talk to me afterwards, um, and I can get that to you in your email uh, if you want to read it. Uh, yeah, good, good question. Yeah, <laughs> right behind you. Good. Um, so during this time peri- period, do you see other historical examples of? I don't know if you would, if there would be Montanists or not, but they were seeking to be martyred, like putting themselves intentionally in that place yeah. for the sake of, you know, for, um, I don't know, for piety's sake, or, you yeah. know, oh, do, do you see that trend during this time, and, and is it attached to any Montanistic kind of um, That was a genu- genuine concern of, of, for Christian leaders, that there, would, there was this overzealousness to kind of give yourself over to be martyred, you know, to kind of, you know, pick a fight with the government and so they would target you and, you know, martyr you. Uh, That was a real concern. Um, And you do have some of the apologists writing to their own people, telling them, you guys need to cool it. Uh, We don't seek out martyrdom. Um, And there was even some debate over uh, whether or not it was proper with the threat of martyrdom to, to flee and to, to go somewhere else. That was, that was an active debate. Um, Cyprian of, of uh, Carthage, uh, one of the most uh, influential bishops uh, who lived in the middle of the third century, who himself died as a, as a martyr. Um, when martyrdom came to his city, he fled, and he got a lot of flack for that, but he, he wrote uh, encouraging his people that martyrdom wasn't something that they were to seek out. They were to be faithful to Christ if in God's providence, they were caught up in a persecution, but there was no sin in fleeing martyrdom and seeking to, to be free from that persecution. And I think, I mean, just, I mean, just my own opinion, uh, you, read, uh, you read the book of Acts, right, with Paul's example. Uh, he is appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen that he would not be beaten. Um, so, you know, as much as he is willing and eager to die for Christ, um, he is willing to appeal to those, those means in order to get out of it. Um, so, yes, that, that was a concern that people would, would do that. And some people were, yes, some people were running headlong into martyrdom, um, foolishly. So what, were there any, like, teachings in that kind of vein our tradition of Christianity that led to that feeling or that desire, like I need to, I need to suffer for Christ now, um, or yeah. else 
I can't, you know, there's no other equal. So I, keep in mind that we're, we're living, we're, we're exploring a, a time period where theology is still developing and, right. and things like that. Um, there was a concern with, um, with how do I get my sins forgiven after I've been baptized. Baptism washes away original sin. Baptism cleanses me from the sins that I've committed up to that point. What do I do with the sins I've committed after that point? Some people were saying there is no forgiveness for sins committed after baptism, which of course is unbiblical. Right? Just read 1 John. Um, but martyrdom was one of the answers. That if you wanted to be guaranteed a ticket into heaven, you would offer yourself up as a martyr. Um, and that's, that's the, that, this language of a second baptism, right? that it would cleanse all of your faults that you had committed uh, pr- after being baptized for the first time in water. Um, so I, I don't know if that's associated with any um, particular sect or movement. Um, it, it is a teaching that, that I think is that the, all Christians were concerned about. Um, was was floating around, you know, Orthodox churches, and there was there was a concern uh, to, to write against that that kind of mentality. So. I, sorry, one last question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Regarding the catechumens, um, you were saying how they you know, sometimes they weren't baptized for upwards of a few months, right, or longer than that, right? Um, I guess how. Um, I don't know if you know, like, what were their reasons for um, the delay? Like, I get having to judge, you know, by to see the fruits of salvation in your life and through interactions and such. Um, but do you know what was kind of, where they got that standard from? Why the, that seemed, you know, I'm thinking of Acts right now, just compared right. to Acts, like, sure. why the delay? Were they, they baptized people immediately? Were they thinking, were they looking for some other specific traits. Right. So, so there was definitely a, an earnestness to be responsible in church membership um, and not bringing somewhat, you know, uh, don't give what is holy to the dogs, etc. Um, uh, there wasn't a fixed standard. Um, that, that's, it, it varied from, from place to place. Um, and it, there wasn't a fixed standard because the Bible doesn't give us a fixed standard. Right, it's kind of left up. Uh, even those who who suggested that it should be, you know, three months or three years or whatever, even they would admit that it's up to uh, the wisdom of the elders in that local church to decide how long the, the, this catechumen period should last. Um, so that yeah, that there wasn't really a, a fixed standard of time. If that answers the question. But they did take membership very seriously, and that is, that is evidence of it. Um, any other questions, comments? Okay. Um, I will close us in prayer, and then uh, Brother Aaron will come and lead us in our closing hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that you are the creator of heaven and earth, that times and seasons, Lord, are in your hand and fixed according to your providence. 
And that even if we should suffer for the sake of Christ, Lord, grant us the boldness and the faithfulness to do so. We're so thankful, Lord, that we have these records in church history of those who were faithful even unto death. May we learn of their example. May we strive to be faithful, having not not even having to suffer for our faith, Lord. Let us be faithful where we are and in the things that we face from day to day. Lord, we're thankful for the freedoms that you've blessed us with. And we pray especially, Lord, for those who are suffering persecution and martyrdom across the globe. We pray for our brothers and sisters in in China, in Africa, and in various places throughout the earth. Lord, bless them. Grant them, Lord, freedom that they might worship you uh, in keeping with your word without fear of persecution. And may we never forget them in our prayers. Father, we, we pray that you would continue to bless us as we press on in our study of church history. All this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.